Take your Bibles and turn back with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. I just finished reading a book called A Place to Belong. It's a very sweet and uh, I think very helpful book on the uh, the beauty and the wonder of the church. Uh, you get, uh, yeah, and in that book there was an interesting story. She was telling how uh, there was a, a house in the neighborhood for sale, and the sign out in the house itself looked pretty drab. It was a, it was dated. It was in the 70s, perhaps, uh, as far as the uh, the decor and hadn't been upgraded over the years. The yard wasn't much and so forth. But there was a sign in the front yard that the realtor put there that said, I'm gorgeous inside. <laughs> and uh, I think Paul would like that. As we, as we think about the church, and that's what we're talking about today, as we think about the church, it's an easy target, isn't it? It's very easy to pick on the church. The church is imperfect because it's made up of imperfect people. Uh, there's always something to pick on about the church, to say, to look at it and see something negative about the church. It's an easy target. At the same time, uh, it is God's church, and it's gorgeous on the inside. The, the book, the whole book, the flavor of the book is come on in, take a look. And when you come on in, you'll find some imperfections, you'll find some problems, you'll find some troubles. There's no doubt about that until the Lord comes back, until we're in his kingdom, that's going to be the case. But uh, I think Paul would say to us, look, uh, on the inside we're gorgeous. On the inside there's great beauty, there's loveliness, there's wonder, there's delight. And that is what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. And keep in mind the 1 Corinthians is a book written to a messy group of Christians. The messiest church perhaps in the New Testament. And yet I think he would say, come on in. It's gorgeous. As we look at this passage of scripture that Brian read for us today, uh, it's usually interpreted wrongly. So you're ready to go? It's usually interpreted and understood to explain the Christian life. That as Christians we are to build up uh, ourselves in Christ, to grow in Him, to be what God wants us to be. And if, as we do so to the glory of God, as we do so, we will ultimately be rewarded accordingly and will receive rewards from Him. If we build in our, on our lives gold, silver, and precious stones, if we will take those wonderful commodities and use them in our lives, we'll look at what that means in a moment, uh, then we will be rewarded for doing so. If we take instead and, and build on our lives wood, hay, and straw, and that kind of more unimportant stuff, then, then we will lose reward. We'll not lose our salvation, but we'll, we'll lose our reward. And as a result of that, we need to be building up our Christian life. That is not what he's saying. You ready? The reason why he's not saying that is because he's not talking about your life. He's not talking about individual people. He's not talking about, about your family. He's not talking about your job. He's not talking about this, that, or the other. He's talking about the church. The context is the church. And if you don't get that, if you don't catch that right up front, then you'll miss this whole passage of Scripture and what he's trying to say. You see, in, in America, we, we translate this and, and interpret it this way, the individualistic way, because we're so individualistic, right? Uh, we are all about ourselves. Uh, we are, we're independent. Uh, we're concerned about my family and my life and, and my ministry even, ministering in myself personally. And, and yet, uh, when it comes to the local church, that might just be a throwaway for many people. More and more Christians are concentrating on their families, on their ministries, on their personal piety and spirituality. But the church, eh, 
not so necessary. Uh, the church, we can take it or leave it. We'll plug into it as we have time. But when it comes to uh, a real aspect of our life and how we live, uh, it's not all that necessary, not all that important, as long as I do uh, these other things. Now, here's the problem with that. That's not what the New Testament teaches. And so if you're going to design your life and look at your life on the basis of what God teaches in his word, you cannot come up with that view. Because as you come to the New Testament scriptures, virtually every epistle that you can look at would not make sense without the context of the local church. The local church is central to all those books of scripture. Some more than others, like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Titus is all about the church. Others like Ephesians deal into Colossians the same way. Philippians does it. On and on we can go. And 1 Corinthians, of course, does so. When we get to chapters 12 and 13 in particular, he's just going to lay it out that every one of us have a place and a role in the church of Christ. God has gifted us. God has given us opportunities. It's all there for the child of God. And you cannot understand the New Testament. Let me go even further. You cannot be a New Testament Christian. Now you can be a Christian, but you cannot be a New Testament-style Christian and ignore the local church and your involvement in it. Now, that's hard, isn't it? That's kind of, that's kind of putting it out there. And yet, that, I believe that's exactly what this text teaches. And I think some of our thinking, our alignment of our thinking needs to be done as we look at our lives in light of the church and in light of what he's saying here. As Paul looks at this then, uh, he's going to look at the local church. He's going to talk about it even being the temple of God ultimately. What a beautiful picture that is. If we're going to build uh, the local church as this text teaches, then we need to know what the local church is. And uh, we need to, able to, and to enable us to build on it. So there's three descriptions Paul gives us about the church to help us. He calls it the field or a farm. He calls it a building and he calls it a temple. We're going to look at the first two today and the temple next time. Let's start with the field. And we looked at this in verse 9 last time, so I'm going to rush through this pretty quickly, but I think it's important. He says, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Uh, each of these descriptions that are going to give us a different ingredient necessary for understanding uh, God's church and our involvement in it. And this one uh, is concerning the farm and the need for workers. Uh, uh, the old farms, the ancient farms were labor intensive, weren't they? Uh, there is no modern equipment. There's no technology like we have today. Farmers have always been hardworking, uh, uh, so I'm not picking on farmers, even though you have those nice air-conditioned cabs and all that. Kind of, but I'm not picking on you. I know it's hard work. It's hard work. But th think about the days before that kind of stuff, when all it was was you out there with your hoe and raking and, and cutting and planting and plowing and harvesting and all those kinds of things that you had to do. And in those cases, you needed a lot of helpers. And that's one reason why families in those times had a lot of children. They needed workers. And those children were involved in that farm life. And so Paul is talking here about that very fact. And he says in this context, we are, we are God's fellow workers. And in the immediate context, he's talking about Paul and Apollos. Remember this church is divided up over whether we should follow Paul or whether we should follow Apollos or Peter. But Apollos in particular... And Paul is saying, look, we're not at odds. We're on the same team here. We are fellow workers, Paul, Apollos and I and others, and we have, the Lord has given us the privilege to be fellow workers together. Now, he's not saying this. 
And some have said this. He is not, or, or lived this way anyway. He is not saying that the church is to be run by professional clergy. And by the way, that has been fashionable in many circles in many, in many years and many times. Where basically the, the, the clergy does everything, the staff does everything, and the people sit back and soak it in. That is not New Testament teaching. That's not found in Scripture. And Paul is not saying that. But he is driving home a point here. In verse 6, he said, I planted this church, and Apollos cultivated it or watered it. And so we have been in on the ground level here, and a very important part uh, of that. But he is also saying in verses 6 and 7, if you'll notice, he says twice that God causes the growth. So the growth is not based upon what Paul does or Apollos does. They do their part, and it's valuable. It's a wonderful privilege, but God causes the growth. So here's what he's saying. This church at Corinth, the church at Southern View Chapel, this church, all Bible-based Christian churches, uh, are, they're not our church. This is not our church. This is not my church. This is not Paul's church. It's not Apollo's church. It is God's church. It is his church. And everything else wraps around that. So that's our first thought. Let's, let's move on to look at something else. If the farming metaphor does not exhaust what Paul wants to say about the church. So he moves on to another thing. Verse 9, you are God's building. He wants now to move the metaphor from farming to construction. And he wants to talk about the building. And he's not, again, talking about the individual Christian. Have you ever tried to build a building with one stick? Ever play Legos? Can you build a building with one Lego? No, I've stepped on a lot of Legos. The kids laid around, and that's no fun. But you can't build a building, even a Lego building, with one Lego. You've got to have bunches of them. And so the building here is not one person. He's not talking about the individual. He's talking about the corporate church the body of Christ, those are the church that is made up of God's people. And he's saying concerning them that there, you are a building and there is a way to build that building, but there's only one way to build on that building. There's not multitude of ways. Yeah, yeah there's, different, there's different flavors. There's different personalities of each church, but there's only one church. It's God's church and there's only one way to build on that church. Notice verse uh, uh, 10, he says, uh, according to the grace of God which was given to me, and I'll start here, look at this, even this church at Corinth is only there because of the grace of God. Only because God sent Paul there, and Apollos later, and so forth, is that church even in existence. It's according to the grace of God, and he says, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Now let's stop there for a moment. He mentions foundation three different times. So what is Paul concerned about as he talks to this church? He's, talk, talking, he's concerned about two different things on this building project. First of all, we, the foundation, and secondly, what we built on that foundation. Let's start with the foundation. He says in verse 10 then, he says, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, first of all, we've got to get the foundation right. If we don't get the foundation right, uh, we may be an organization, we may be a social club, we may be a good time, have a good time of fellowship, but we are not a local church. 
We're not God's church. The foundation must be laid and it must be lived on, acted on. And so he's saying here that, that God is the architect, the designer. When we built this building here, and I'll use that example several times this morning, we built this building here and later on added on, uh, we had an architect. That architect uh, did, it spent a long time laying out all the details and all the blueprints. We got buckets of blueprints over here at the closet somewhere of all the things that, that they designed. That foundation had to be laid and designed by the architect. And so he's saying here there is one foundation. Paul goes on in verse 10 and he says uh, that he is the master builder, like a wise master builder. I laid a foundation, another's building on it, and so forth. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, the one that was laid. Now, where did Paul get his blueprints? From God, from Christ. It wasn't up to Paul's creativity to try to decide what the church would look like, what the church would be. That was God's design. God is the great architect of the church. And Paul simply laid the foundation under the, under the direction of that great architect. And he was a contractor then. Uh, when we built the building here, we had an architect that designed it, and we had a general contractor that ran the show. That general contractor uh, took the blueprints, and he threw them in a garbage can, burned them up, and moved on, right? <laughs> if anybody knows anything about construction, it looked like something I would build if that would happen. He took the blueprints, he took the design that was given to him by the architect and they built on that the general contractor. And Paul is saying here, I am the general contractor. I, I, I am the one that the Lord sent to begin this process in building this church at Corinth and, and by extension all local churches. That blueprint hadn't changed. Now this is essential. The blueprint of the local church God's design for the local church hasn't changed since the first century. And that's very hard to take for people that are very creative and want to do trendy things and, and change, change even the structure of the church. And Paul is very concerned about that because the issue is once you move beyond the blueprint, beyond the design, then you change the structure altogether. When we again, uh, in ver going to verse 11, he's talking about those that build on it. He's not picking on Apollos here. He's simply saying there are other people going to build on what he laid down. So again, when we built the building here, we had a general contractor, but there was all sorts of subcontractors. So the general contractor had subcontractors for electric electricity, for the drywall, for the painting, for the HVAC systems, for the roof, all sorts of things. Some of those subcontractors were better than others. And we didn't know that till later. And we got into the building and we found out a few things that uh, were not what they should have been. And we saw some subpar work on the part of a few subcontractors. The one of those are calling in right now and saying, I, I tried my best, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but didn't have, didn't have the information I needed or something. Paul's concerned about two things here concerning the foundation. One, some build beyond the foundation. They expand the foundation. They build off of the foundation. Uh, they ignore the blueprints and move beyond. This is extremely common. It's happening right here at Corinth. Extremely common today. 
And I've to give these couple illustrations before, but, but one of the trendiest pastors in America, one of the largest churches in America, wrote his book on how to build a great church. And in his book, he promised a secret sauce that he had developed in, 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 to build a great church. His secret sauce, if you would follow his formula, his ingredients, you too could build a church like his. The secret sauce, which he admitted in his book, was not drawn directly from Scripture. He built his own foundation. And it's trendy, and people love him, and people follow him, but I'm going to suggest to you he's not building Christ's church. Some years ago, also another organization, one of the largest church churches in the country and largest Christian or church networks in the country decided that after many, many years of designing a church not on the pages of Scripture, not drawn from God's blueprint, after all those years of doing that, they decided they were not accomplishing their desired goal of creating disciples. And as a result of that, they said, we are going to scrap everything we've ever done and start over. Good idea. So what do they do next? Return to the scriptures with a diligent study of the New Testament to see God's design? No. They sent out emails to all the people in their network saying, send us your methods that worked for you and we'll put together a new design. Let me suggest to you, once we start doing that, we don't build God's church. And what I'm saying today, right, right at this point, probably is very, very unfashionable, unpopular, but my friends, it's very serious, and Paul's very serious here. Are we going to build God's church, or are we going to build something that we want to build ourselves, some design of our own? It's not hard to go back to the blueprint and see what it's about. So Paul was concerned they were moving beyond the foundation, and the foundation, as he says in verse 11, is nothing less than Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing he's concerned about is what was being built upon that structure. Uh, and as he, as he thought about that, as people built on that, they have layered, people throughout the ages have layered various gospel messages that are not the message about salvation in Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians talks about four of these, I believe, at least three. For example, they've layered the gospel with legalism, which is the idea that, that uh, we're saved by faith plus works. It's legalism, not taught in Scripture. We're saved by faith alone looking, seeing our own sinfulness, our need for a Savior, turning to Christ, taking His gift of salvation by grace, that He gives us by grace alone, receiving it by faith alone. That's the gospel message. And when we start adding works of any kind, baptism, church membership, whatever, goodness, morality, to that, then we've lost the gospel message. Also, in the Colossians, we find mysticism. That is the idea that we're saved by faith, but we live by experiences and feelings. Then there's asceticism, the idea that in some circles where you're saved by faith, but you, you become more and more holy by giving up things. The more you don't do, the more holy you are. And then there's liber, libertinism, I would call it, saved by faith, but you have a license to sin. Do whatever you want to do, doesn't matter. God's grace is sufficient. All those are layers put upon the foundation that are not biblical. The primary issue at Corinth, however, was integrating the wisdom of the world into the church. Taking the worldview of the world, the ideas of the world, the, the, the concepts of a godless world, and bringing them into the church with the idea they would attract more people by doing so. That was the primary issue. They were the first integrationist 
integrating godless philosophies and ideas and worldviews in with scripture to make some kind of a, of a pie that doesn't rec- uh, is not in alignment with God wanting to have for his people. They even baptized that with a passage of scripture in the book of Exodus. They call it spoiling the Egyptians. You ever hear that? Spoiling the Egyptians. Remember back in Exodus, the Lord said to the people of Israel, as you leave Egypt, go to, the, go to your neighbors and ask for gold and silver, and I will turn their hearts towards you, and they'll give you gold and silver, and you'll have that gold and silver, not so that you become rich, but so that when we go out into the wilderness and we build the implements of worship for, for the Lord in the tabernacle, gold and silver would be there. And it says right in Scripture, they, they plundered or spoiled the Egyptians. And some have used that metaphorically or allegorically and say, look, now we can go out and grab the world views of the world, the philosophies of the world, and bring them into the church and we'll spoil the Egyptians. Let me suggest to you, not only is that bad exegesis of Scripture, it's nonsense. You cannot blend the Word of God with the, the wisdom of the world. And so Paul was concerned about those things. How do we combat this? Here's the second thing of importance. Not only are we to build on the right foundation, we're to build with the right materials. Look at verse 12. Now, if any man builds on, a found, on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and wood, hay and straw. Now, look at these materials. What kind of materials are we to build on the church with? What, what is it? Some, some have tried to really push these uh, pictures and try to come up with, with each of them meaning something uh, different than the other. I don't think Paul's doing that at all. I think that goes to our imagination if we're not real careful. You know, I think it's clear what he's saying, but I think he is not saying each of these things mean something different. Here's what he's saying. There's two things. First of all, what materials we are to use. Verse 12. If he builds a house with gold, silver, precious stones, what what materials are we to use to build the church of Christ? Things that are valuable. In this context, that has to be if Jesus Christ is already laid as the foundation, then it has to be the truth of God's word that we build our churches with. God's word is the truth. It builds the church. We are the pillar and the support of truth, according to 1 Timothy 3. 15. If you ever drove through a neighborhood or get out in the countryside and you saw some house falling down, you know, my mind, maybe I'm sick, could be, but in my mind, my imagination always goes to wonder at what point they quit taking care of that house. And then I started thinking about who may have lived there. Maybe there was a young family there, some, some guy or wife together built a house, built their own house. It was their pride and joy. They built this beautiful house for themselves out here in the country, and they, were, and they, they had children. They raised a family. They had joys and heartaches and struggles, and they lived in that house for years. In my mind, I've got them there 50 years. And, and after all that time, at some point in time, they walk away, probably never intending to let the place fall down. But it does. And why does it fall down? Well, maybe they had inferior workmanship. Maybe they had inferior products that they put into the house. Maybe it's neglect. But nevertheless, the house is falling down. And so he looks at these people here and he says, Do you want your house to fall down? Do you want to have a house that will last? A house that is stable? A house that is built on the right things? If you want to have that, you need gold, silver, and precious stone as your ingredients, as your materials 
to build upon. And that is nothing less than the Word of God. Any church that is not centered around the Word of God is building on something else outside of gold, silver, and precious stones. Secondly, we have wood, hay, and straw. What is that? Well, that would be the inferior products. That would be the ideas of people. That would be the trendy methods and, and uh, the progressive theologies today that do not adhere to the Word of God. You build your church on that, it'll be around for a while, and then it'll collapse. And so he says here going on, he says then that when that happens, he wants us to know something. As, as that built, building is being built, as that church is being built, he wants us to know one more thing. Not only do we have to pay attention to how we build it, but he wants us to know it will also be inspected by God. Now keep in mind we're talking about our involvement with the local church. Extremely important to remember that. He's not talking about your involvement with your family. He's not talking about your involvement personally for your own personal spiritual life. He's not talking about your involvement in ministry out there. These are all good things and all dealt with in Scripture. That is not what he's talking about here. He is talking about the local church and our involvement with the local church. And he says our involvement with the church, our, well, our part of that church, our building in that church will be inspected by none other than Jesus Christ. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? To think I will one day stand before Jesus Christ and he will inspect what I have done in relationship to a local church. Not in relationship to a ministry out there. Not in relationship to my family. Not in relationship to this, that, or the other. But to the local church. Again, all those other things are extremely valuable and taught in scripture. But he's talking about the local church. And he's given us a very clear warning here about that. Look at verse 13. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Uh, when we built this building we had inspectors come. Many inspectors. Uh, in Springfield you get inspected to death. And they're here all the time. You know, a couple, few years ago we built a sliding door over here, a, a dividing door over here in one of our classrooms just to make it more useful to us. And we had inspectors coming out all the time and on the last day when they checked out I think we had six inspectors here coming in to look at our a door you know we're, we're talking about a door and they're all here they all checked it off they all had a cup of coffee and went away you know and had a great old time inspectors well this is much more serious here the day comes when the Lord is going to inspect our lives in relationship to the local church and what's he going to inspect two things first of all the quality of the work he says, each man's work will become evident. It will show it. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Fire is the idea of pur purification or consumption. And it's going to test the quality here of each person's work. And then the duration of it. Go on to verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as through fire. Duration. It will last. Well, what we have built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his church will it last. In, in America, if you have a house that's 100 years old, you think that's something special, don't you? Marsha and I like to watch a show on television sometimes, I think one of these crazy channels that called Escape to the Country. Some of you seen that? Escape to the Country is these houses in, in England, some people living in, in London, uh, and they, 
Did I say something wrong? Uh, London, and they're, they're wanting to move to the country, and they're going out to look at houses, and the youngest houses are 300 years old. A lot of them are old barns and stables that they have, have taken and rebuilt. Why are they still standing? Because they were built right. They were built to last. They weren't built temporarily. They were built to last. And so we're looking at a foundation that built to last. Churches like ours all over the world that are standing for the truth are here today because somebody built a found on the foundation so it would last. And they did that with the teaching of the Word of God. That is what he's concerned about, the duration. He says the day will show it in verse 13. The day will reveal it. And he's talking here now, that day is called, we call it the judgment seat of Christ. When all Christians will appear before the Lord himself, before his judgment bench to give an account of our service for the Lord and for the church. And at that point, our works will be revealed for what they really were at that stage. As I think about that, I want to ask you to pull, turn on the PowerPoint at this point. I want to take a quick run through the, church, the judgment seat of Christ very quickly, and as I do so, we're going to, there's many scriptures we could look at, but we will be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, so if you want to keep these two passages in your flipping here back and forth, uh, that would be helpful, we'll look at those two in particular, but I want to look at the judgment seat of Christ for a moment, I want to start with a, dis a disclaimer, and I've said this so many times over the years, but I'm not sure everybody gets it. I just want to make it real clear that a lot of Christians have been taught falsely that one day the Lord is going to pull out of his vault as you stand before him and the whole world. He's going to pull out of his vault the a film of the awfulest things you've ever done or said or thought. And he's going to blast it up on a big screen TV all over the world so that everybody can see it at once and everybody's going to get to see the worst things you've ever done. Wouldn't that be special? <laughs> and we're seeing that uh, in the last year all over the place when somebody tweeted something five years ago or somebody said something 15 years ago and it, it's been found and brought back and their lives are ruined or canceled. Wouldn't that be awful if, if that, the Lord had that material on you? And he does. And he just says, yeah, yeah could let you in, but I'm going to cancel you because the way you think and the things you've done. Wow. What an awful way to live life. And a lot of Christians, I'm afraid, live in that environment of fear. That I'm afraid that I know I've done bad things. I know I've thought bad things. What if the Lord's going to blast that up for the whole universe to see, and then I'm going to be judged on that, and I'm going to be wiped out. I'm going to be canceled. Good news. Never going to happen. All right? This new cancel culture we're in now is the most unforgiving culture that's ever been imaginable. You make a mistake somewhere, you're done. Jesus Christ is the God of all mercies and all grace. He doesn't cancel us. He saves us. He redeems us. He forgives us. He makes sinners his children. It's a whole different world, folks. So what are we going to do when we stand before him? What's it, what is this all about? It was not to look at all of our bad things and let everybody see what they are. And I'm really glad that it's going to happen. It probably wouldn't be good to hear, think what I'm thinking right now. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, let's start with this. The judgment seat of Christ. What does it mean? It means the Bema seat. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians 5. 
As I said, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The word for judgment here is bima, and uh, there are more than one word used for judgment seat in Scripture, and they can be used in three ways. As a court of justice, like going to, to, to court, as a military tribunal, or athletic games. This is the one that can be used for that final thing, athletic games. A lot of you have been involved with with athletic events and you go up before the judge and you get a ribbon if you've done well and that's what that talks about or a gold medal and that's the idea this is the, this is not a judgment seat in which God condemns your sins as a Christian Romans 8 1 there's now therefore no condemnation no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus but we will stand before a reward seat in which he will examine our our life in that regard what will take place at that particular time? Or, or, or first of all, when will it take place? Biblically speaking, it has to be after the rapture of the church and before Jesus returns. Because we find in Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 19, when the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, it, is ready to come back with Jesus Christ, she's already received her rewards. She's already been cleansed. So the next step in God's program, eschatological program is to come again to receive his body, that the rapture take us to be with him and then we'll go before him at this judgment seat receive our rewards and one day seven years later come back with him the place, when will it take place well where, when, uh, the place itself it has to be in the heavenlies According to 1 Thessalonians 4.17, when the Lord raptures us, he takes us to be with him, and thus we will always be with the Lord, it says. And there we are with him in the heavenly places. The next one would be who is involved with this. 1 Corinthians 5.10, in this context, these are all Christians. No one say people will be here. Only Christians will be here at this time. Church age believers. Christ will be the judge. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And so we keep in mind that he is our savior, but he's also the judge. He will be the one evaluating our lives. It's his, it's his judgment seat. What's the purpose? It's not for judgment, as we saw in Romans 8 1, but the review and reward, 5.10. Look at this with me. So that each one will be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Reward according to what we've done, good or bad. And here's the important thing. The word for bad here, catch this. You might want to write it in your Bible. There's three different words for, that could be translated bad in the New Testament. Two of them always mean evil. This one means worthless. It doesn't mean evil. It means worthless. So he's evaluating our lives on the basis of what we have done of value for the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those that uh, have done things of value for Christ and for his church in the context, will receive crowns. Those are metaphorical pictures of rewards, and there's five of them in Scripture we don't have time to look at. But I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for just a moment and look at these final verses. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Okay? If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as so as through fire. You have no danger, if you're a Christian, of losing your salvation. The Lord's not going to go through the record books and say, man, you, you tipped over here. You did one too many things. It's enough. No, you've been forgiven for past, present, future sins if you know Christ. It's the greatest, most beautiful thing 
ever imaginable. And so you'll not lose your salvation, but you will lose reward. And that's an awful thing to lose before the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has built his church. He's asked us, he's laid a foundation. He's called on us to build on that foundation. In 1923, there was one of the most devastating earthquakes the world has ever known in Tokyo, Japan. 140,000 people died. Buildings were destroyed all over Tokyo. Fires were everywhere. A report came back to the United States that the Imperial Hotel, which was, had been designed and built by Frank Lloyd Wright, whom some consider the greatest architect that's ever lived, had collapsed and was destroyed. A reporter went to Frank Lloyd Wright. Remember, this is 23. Not, they didn't have the media we have today. They went to Frank Lloyd Wright and said, what, what do you think about that? And he said, you can put that in your newspaper if you want to, but you're going to have to retract it. That building didn't collapse. How did he know? He said, I know how I built it. The next day they found out it not only didn't collapse, it became the hub upon, upon which most people were rescued in that area. Why? Because he built it right. He built the foundation right. He built the building right. It did not collapse in that earthquake. See, the Church of Christ has a foundation laid. He laid it. He designed it. He architected it. And he calls on you and I as his people to build on that foundation in such a way that he's honored and we're rewarded and the Church of Christ goes forth year after year, day after day. And we remember but it says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower. Father, we thank you for the church. We know it's easy to pick on the church. I know it, we know it's easy to neglect the church. But that's not in your will, Lord. You love your church. You gave your, your, your son for the church. The church will be your bride. You build your church. Not even hell can destroy it. Father, may each of us examine our own lives and our own walk with you and how we are living uh, in such a way that we honor you through our ministry and involvement, not only with you, but with the local church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.